This is JU Israel Teachers Lounge, where we reach out to current Gap Year students, alumni, and any interested listeners, keeping you connected to what's happening in Israel and giving you insight behind the headlines. I am your host, Senior JU Israel Educator Michael Unterberg, and today joined, as always, by co-host and director of JU Israel, Alan Goldman. How are you, Alan? Doing pretty good, Mike. Well, that's good. And today we are also joined by Israel educator and producer of the podcast, Matt Littman. How are you, Matt? I'm fabulous. Thank you, Michael. Fabulous is very enthusiastic. Um, Today, we would like to discuss a a topic that I think our students were uh, very troubled by, obviously a very painful topic, the uh, the brutal murder of uh, Ori Einsbacher and what it means, what terrorism has done to shape Israeli life and culture. Uh, an incident like this, which, you know, for those who didn't read the story, a young woman who was, uh, well, can you go over the basics of the story, Alan? Sure. Um, last Thursday, uh, Ori, um, who was doing her national service in a uh, home uh, on the outskirts of Jerusalem, by the sort of the southern outskirts, sort of the southern forest near, if people know Israel, near the Malcha Mall, the zoo, and an and a outdoor kind of uh, also um, place called Ein Yael, uh, left work to um, go meditate in the forest, it's called, to have some, uh, you know, time in nature. And uh, this was Thursday morning when she didn't return. So um, by in Thursday night, they found her body. She had been uh, murdered. What became then uh, clear by a Palestinian from Hebron was then characterized as a, as a terrorist attack. Um, and the IDF caught the terrorist Friday night in Ramallah. Um, he, would, uh, he had left his home in Hebron with a knife, headed to the um, town of Beit Jala, which is just across the way from the area where Ori was found. Um, and, uh, of course, it's shaken, uh, once again, Israel in many different ways. It was uh, um, Israeli society in and of itself. Um, every single act of terrorism obviously gains a lot of um, attention. And it's closer to home, which being the fact that not only in the Jerusalem area, she lived in a settlement outside of Jerusalem in the Gush Etzion area called Tekoa, um, where is a very heavily uh, anglicized uh, area and neighborhoods in Tekoa itself. It's an interesting place we should do sometime. Uh, yeah, that would be cool. It's a very, it's a very uh, heterogeneous community, Tekoa. Yeah. Right. It's not your typical settlement, what people think of it. Uh, it just so happens I also have a close friend uh, who teaches also in in one of the schools, a couple of schools, who, who is a neighbor to the Einzbach uh, family. Uh, so it's one that obviously um, hits home, uh, closer to us, but it, in Israel society, you see it's, it's, it's major focus in the news and people talking about it and things on social media that it, it really absorbs the society uh, as a whole, one could say. You, you mentioned earlier that there was at the beginning some question as to whether this should be classified as terrorism and eventually the Israeli establishment came down very clearly that it it absolutely was terror but why was that why was that ambiguous at the beginning well yeah i don't know if it was necessarily ambiguous as much ambiguous as it was israel 
like any, I think, um, important you know, democracy in a place that believes in due process, that they take their, t- they take their time, um, sometimes to the detriment, some people would say, of, of classifying, make sure they do the, the hard work to make sure what they're deciding um, is, is going to be true and they're not just putting out initials. So sometimes it's a super clear right away being, you know, maybe pamphlets they find on and, and then there's no repercussions of what they want. Other other times, like this time, um, you know, apparently there were certain things that were a little bit outstanding that weren't, you know, 100% clear, but from also what well, I... Well, for instance, there isn't usually sexual violation when in, in a normal... In, you don't have rape and terror cases for the as a rule. What, what, she, what do we know for sure she was? Uh, yeah. uh, I, think, I think the press has stated that pretty definitively. Okay. That, that And it's hard also as a as a consumer of the news, is that uh, Israel is also very judicious in what information they let out to right. the press for a lot of reasons, security reasons, um, so, things so I, that the family may not, you know. So that, so that is the second part for what I heard afterwards also is one reason of holding back some information was um, lessons that they learned from the attack in Barkhan in the Shomron a few months ago where it took them, I think, more than a month, maybe two months, to find the perpetrator um, holding back details. It was a guy who walked into a place where he formerly worked and tortured and murdered the people in his old office. Right. So holding back sometimes the information it helps the the security services uh, identify and maybe um, be able to track down the people more. So whatever. So there, there's multiple reasons why they may have held off on that classification. Um, and now it is pretty clear. I mean, he is well, being he, very open to the Shin Bet yeah. and saying that was my goal all along. And you know, he's a person who has a track record of leaving without going through a checkpoint before, and he left. He had been spending time in jail for, a, you know, more minor, such as being caught with a knife, trying to get into, I think, Marta Machpela, the, the cave of the patriarchs in and, and Hebron, so. Um, and it, and it, it, it's, <coughs> I, I hate to say it this way, but it's a moment, I don't know how to say this in a way that doesn't sound, you know, harsh, but, like, it's a moment where, Terrorism is not in the newspapers daily, so individual cases become, you know, ha- has enormous emotional impact. Her story has emotional impact as opposed to during a time like, let's say, during the Second Intifada, where they were coming so quickly every day that you just became, individual stories became blended into this overall sense of shock. Is that, do you think that's accurate? Yeah, for sure, for sure. I mean, uh, the time of the Second Intifada, in, in many ways, you're a time of war. And, you know, war is, um, you know, is dealt with the numbers and all kinds of things are dealt with very differently, of course. Um, you know, every every life, of course, is uh, is extremely painful and, and happens, but... Um, you're right, as it's singled out and these kinds of things. Of course, we and we, we, we since the Second Intifada, this, for many different various reasons, I don't think now we're going to go into, but Israel has very much been able to keep the the numbers fairly low when there are terrorist attacks. I mean, again, that's not, not saying that... Uh, exactly. Every <laughs> single one is... Yeah, right. yeah but, but when the Second Intifada, we were talking about terrorist attacks where 25, 30 people were being killed on buses in, in one bombing, and, and that could happen you know, multiple times a week, even sometimes a day. Well, it's over 1,000 people over a five-year period. Yeah. So that, you know, of course, that's uh, treated uh, differently, but... Uh, that, of course, also uh, the way people reacted. So people, during the Second Intifada, people didn't go out. You didn't go out. You didn't go, you didn't go into open areas. You, d- you certainly wouldn't go wandering into the forest to 
to go to meditate um, in, in that area during the second divide. Now people don't. Yeah, I mean, think you shouldn't know either, really. Well, people don't think twice about it, really. I mean, you know, the, the level of security is is very high in Israel now. You know, obviously it's not it's not hermetic and it doesn't nothing happens. But um, so that's also another reason. Well, I mean, it's a tricky thing. I mean, this 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 case does have a political element to it, but there are things that happen in other countries without a political element. Where a story like this, stories like this happen in other countries where terror is not a factor. It's just a horrible person, criminal crime. Yeah. yeah. Well, I also think that one of the other reasons that this is also hitting home very hard to so many people is because the climate is one at the moment we've kind of had a bit of a lull in, in terrorist attacks of so people going about their normal lives and what, what was this kid doing? She was just going to hang out in the forest. It wasn't like she was going to a dangerous area or so she thought. It wasn't like any kind of like warnings or anything like that. It was just someone hanging out and somebody else decided that they were going to perpetrate an act of terror. And the whole thing together, like her innocence and his cruelty and brutality together create like a really horrible um, picture for people. And I think that's another reason why it's been so impactful on people. What's interesting also that, and I don't, obviously, uh, I say this not as, as any sort of blame, but just as sort of an observation. She, I don't think she was 20 yet. No. So she, the second intifada is not part of her m- mental framework. In other words, I think that a genera- if you're o- in your 20s, so you're children of the second intifada, you're, you're, you, I think you experience life in Israel differently, would be my guess. Yeah, I mean, she was, I guess, about five when the second intifada pretty much had ended. Um, but uh, I know my, my son... Uh, on, on many occasions, we've talked about how his generation, he, they see them as their children of the Second Intifada. That's how they grew up. That's their framing. That's what they remember um, in very critical uh, time in their life, in elementary school, of missing bombings, of passing by places that were bombed out, of coming home on the bus and the driver listening to the radio and listening to all the you know uh, reports and what was happening. Um, they they grew up in a sense of you know you grow up in a war. I mean, a Second Intifada was a war. I mean, it's not it's a war in the home front. Yeah. It's not a war across the enemy you know across enemy lines. It's in your home, right? And it's not you know we often think of that war as you know it's the Six Day War or, or or the Yom Kippur War as you know they have a beginning and ends that are very clear and there's very clear fronts and where people are fighting. One could say yes and no. I mean even when you're in the home front you're in bomb shelters and things like that. Here it was a very different type of war, but it was a war. And and that affects just like people who have deal, you know, in other, you know, grew up during the Second World War, you know, in London or whatever that has framed their um, their their lives. So this, in many ways, I think, frames for a generation we call Generation X, you know, uh, certainly has framed it for Israelis. Generation X and above. I mean, when we under twenty, let's you know, if we call them Generation Z, which I think seems to be the yeah. The term that people use, Generation Z, may not have that framing, and that framing has shaped. Look, I, I don't think, I don't know that Jews from the diaspora uh, understand how much the Second Intifada shapes Israeli culture and society today. I don't know that they they have an appreciation of how how deeply visceral that experience was of you know saying goodbye to your family in the morning and not not being confident. When you- I was trying to explain this um, yesterday. I was talking to some students about, uh, I think we were talking about Oslo and, and things like that, but we were trying to, I was also explaining about the Second Intifada, and I said, guys, it's very hard for you to relate to it because our students currently in Israel now for the year 
have very few security restrictions or security guidelines. Now, I worked with Alan on a program that was happening during the second intifada, and the students were very often on lockdown. There were many places they weren't allowed to go. It was a like public buses. I said, that's one of the things I said to my students. I say to my students, look, imagine that your your year in Israel and you can't go on a bus. In, and today, I guess the, the most popular hangout place for our students is like the Shuk. They probably wouldn't have been allowed to go there in those days. Then Yehuda Street, they certainly weren't allowed. Emek Rifaim became a cool hangout because they weren't allowed to go to the Shuk and they weren't allowed to go to Ben Yehuda Street. Exactly. So Emek Rifaim blossomed in that. Exactly. So I, I tell them that you, your experience here for the year would have been completely different to the way it looks today. Um, and it's hard for them to understand that. But it, again, you use the example of the buses. Okay, you can't get the bus or... You're not allowed to go to this place or that or, place. Even, I mean, at times, even 2002, 2003, when things were very, very, um, it's really worse, before Israel went back into the Area A of the Palestinian uh, Authority, um, literally, they were not allowed out of the buildings. They literally came to Gap here and they weren't allowed out of their buildings. And I remember the lockdowns, would, they, the lockdowns yeah. would happen a lot. And we'd have they, to put on extra programming weeks. for them because yeah. they'd go out of their minds otherwise. And, uh, you know, and the big thing was, okay, you can take a cab from your building to the Malchamal because that had guards and that was what you were allowed to, to go out. Um, and so that was just Gap here. But for Israelis, you know, well, what about someone who, like, you take a bus to school. You take a bus to work. You, you a you public bus. A public, a public bus. You don't have that. There's a lot of mass transit. It is is. I mean, actually, now less than it was in those days. Now, I think there are a lot more cars on the road. But mass public transportation has always been a huge element of Israeli travel. Yeah, it's public transportation and also the security. We we look at the security now. And again, now it's gotten less. But there used to be security guards at every restaurant for 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 a while. But but what does that do to a society when you you know when like when we go to America, my kids like are always well. Well, where are the guards at the mall, right? Or you know, it's a it's a different. I, I, myself also, it's like that openness that you don't have in Israeli society. Um, again, some of it preceded the Second Intifada, obviously, but but the Second Intifada has sort of really rammed it home. Um, well, the, the, there was a terrorist boom in the '90s, but there was a sense that because that was during the Oslo process, that this is these are extremists yeah. trying to derail the Oslo process. Right. And once we can really lock in peace, that should slow things down. In 2000, at Camp David, when Israel presented what they thought was the maximum offer, and the American administration and Bill Clinton and his, chief, you know, his person running it, Dennis Ross, said, "Wow, this is it. This is the Palestinian state. You've made the maximum offer." Arafat walked away, and within weeks, you have this explosion of terror, the Second Intifada. That that changed politics in Israel till today. Really? Yeah, I mean, it, it was it was a, a planned um, shift back to violence when Israel, for you know, for, in the Israelis' mind, for seven years, you know, had been working a, away from that, even if there was violence, um, and that 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 shift really, since then, you have not really seen a center left government take over. You've seen center center right. We really haven't seen a sense of left. The left is not really taken, and, and and I think a lot of that is really due to this consciousness change in the second intifada. That as you talked about before, this visceral, you know. Sure, we'd like to have make a peace. We'd like to have a second, you know, two state uh, solution. But there's no, there's no real like it's not going to happen. Right? Israelis just don't think it's going to happen. They don't think there's a real plan that's going to make it happen. And not for the foreseeable future yeah. with this Palestinian, just generation yeah. of Palestinians. We don't see that as our in in our foreseeable future. Yeah. And so that has really shaped 
Israeli, Israeli politics, uh, probably more than anything else in the last... Uh, I mean, if you look at it historically, you know, the, the, the Labor Party, the party of Ben-Gurion, whether it was called Labor or, you know, in its various permutations, ran the country steady through 77. And then when, you know, when Likud won in 77, it was still Labor or Likud, Labor or Likud. In polls, if you look at polls this week, and, and it, was, it was a labor government that off that made Oslo, and a labor government then offered under Ehud Barak, who offered that plan that you talked about in 2000, and that was the last time that labor, by itself, was running. I mean, they joined a couple Likud points, but yeah, yeah, but that, but you know, if you look at it in 2019, and you know, Likud is yeah. is polling at 30 seats, and labor is at maybe five. So that's right, because if, if for those of you that were listening last week when we did a. Uh, an overview or a, a look at some of the uh, polling uh, results for the moment for the upcoming elections, we, we as, a, as a team here that you're listening to today, we struggle to come up with any kind of block that would be a center-left block that would be viable to make a government. And that exactly... We couldn't. We couldn't put the math together to have a center-left. In, in theory, even, if the poll numbers are at all accurate, we couldn't figure out how a center-left government could exist, even if they win in the election on April 9th. So that indicates that enormous shift that you're both talking about. I mean, that, that yeah. underlines it and proves it. You're right. and, and I think that it's fair to say that it's really the second intifada that, that brings it. It's the second intifada, the collapse of Oslo. Obviously, there's other influences, but... Well, look, I, I mean, one of the ways I frame it to my students is in 87 was the first intifada, which really began grassroots as young people throwing rocks at soldiers. And so that, that created the sense in Israel that we need to make peace with the Palestinians because it created a, a, a growing, it, it built up the strength of the left in saying, well, this is not something we want to be as Israel. We don't want to be the kind of country where, you know, young Arabs are throwing rocks at our soldiers because they don't want us here. So it, it built the possibility for Oslo, the, the first intifada. The second intifada smashed the power of the Israeli left and and brought this sense that, again, it, it's not that, I don't think Israeli political opinion shifted as much as people say. I think there's just a sense that the, 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 the idea that the left tried failed. And therefore, that's not a viable option. And I don't know that political leaders in the left have provided another narrative that makes, it, that makes Israelis feel confident voting for them. And I want to try to say something. I may say it wrong, and you guys can help me say it better if you can get what I'm trying to say, which is that and it, it's not necessarily about fact and fiction here, about, oh, Israel gave the best offer or not, and the Palestinians rejected it. What we're kind of talking about is what it, what, how it takes shape, how the narrative is taking shape in Israeli consciousness. And when Israelis get up in the day, what are they thinking about? So it's not, it's not that they're not, that they wouldn't like to have like this peace, some kind of peace out there, or they wouldn't, or it would, they would be against the two-state solution. Again, we're talking about the majority of Israelis, but since they don't think it's possible, because they don't think that there's a a, a a partner over there, that's how they're thinking and the narrative that's in their mind. They're also not thinking as much what's going on in the territories, <laughs> so that when there's a group of people who are like, okay, let's build, let's build, and going there, the Israelis are like, okay, whatever, because it's not going to be peace anyway. So why do I even have to care about that issue so much outside of, oh, I may have to serve in the army, or my kid may have to serve in the army or something like that. But Bagadol, there's no real thought that, you know... It's not about right or wrong. It's not yeah. about... And we're not, we're not speaking in defense of or against or criticism. It's yeah. just as... Listen, just as Palestinians have a narrative, which also has a post-traumatic stress element to it for things that they've suffered. So, And that narrative should be heard and listened to and taken into account. Well, 
Okay, but so should the Israelis. And that Israeli narrative is very real in a way that I think even most diaspora Jews don't totally get, but certainly non-Jews don't really don't really get. Yeah, I mean, I and I think that I think you really hit on that that like that button. It's a post-traumatic stress, (laughs) you know. uh, I actually noticed uh, uh, Chloe. uh, How do you say her last name? Valderi uh, tweeted. The other day about the who's that congresswoman Elon Omar? Yeah. She tweeted. I mean, it was essentially an anti-Semitic tweet that people, American politicians support Israel, and she wrote it was all about the Benjamins. And then somebody responded to that tweet saying, "Who exactly is paying them to support Israel?" And she wrote APAC. And so you, of course, have these voices saying, you know, these anti-Israel voices saying, "Well, you know, she's just telling the truth and the fact that she had to apologize because the whole Democratic Party proves that she was right all along." When she wasn't criticizing Israel, she was saying that Jews are using their money and power to pervert the American political system. That's not anti. That's not criticizing Israel. That's just good old-fashioned anti-Semitism. And one of the, and I thought Chloe had one of the elements of her tweet. What she tweeted, I have a bunch of questions that I would love to be able to talk to her about. And one of them was, since both sides, and that was her language, have post-traumatic stress from their experiences, what would you propose to help them heal? As opposed to looking at things as as conflict, I thought that was a smart framing by Chloe. Yeah, that that's very smart for me, and that's exactly it. I mean, in other words, as much as we deal with the political side, and as much as we deal with okay, how do we get the you know you often hear well the Palestinians are you know have this narrative and victims and this I'm not not discounting it or delegitimizing it, but okay, well what about dealing with Israeli? Uh, um, you know traumas and and, and Israel sense and and it always seems like yeah but Israel's strong Israel's the powerful there's no like what are they afraid of well, this, was, this was sort of Kara Glatz issue yeah. that we interview, we interviewed a few episodes ago of you're not going to get you're not going to move forward you're not going to develop anything real unless you're genuinely understanding a broad range of what's going on and certainly Israel isn't just whatever two-dimensional image you have in your head, it's real and the people are real. And That's an important point. The, the people are real. The people, the real people have experienced real things, real trauma, real suffering, and that has to be respected and that has to be understood. And like you said before, also the Palestinian narrative has to be respected and understood. But with that understanding that we're dealing with people and the emotions of people, you can never move forward with anything, I don't think. And, and exactly. So when something like this with what happened over last Thursday with Ori, it, it does it it brings it does it it sort of brings to light something that's very much on the surface always. So when people say, "Oh, so what do they have to worry about the security?" Oh, this is only oh, it's only one attack, one person. Look how many Palestinians are killed, X Y Z. Which again, not discounting, but but that not understanding the reverberations it has within the Israeli psyche. Um, where every single, uh, uh, maybe I'm uh, overstating, but most Israelis... I don't know that you are. I don't know that you are. But most Israelis know firsthand people who have lost people in... in, There's very few degrees of separation in Israel for almost anything. Right. So, uh, you know, in attacks. And when I was in, during the Second Intifada, I lived on on a moshav that was in in Israel's, you know, proper, within the Green Line. And we knew three, four four families who lost children in the Second Intifada. My aunt was murdered. My aunt made Aliyah in August of 2000, was murdered in May of 2001. So it's very, you you won't find... And I think it would be very hard to find people in Israel who haven't experienced that kind of loss and or experienced uh, been in an attack themselves. 
um, again, we can, you know, go on where uh, close proximity to attacks. And that fear is very real. And it's and for a huge contingent now um, of Israelis, it, it was the framing of their growing up. Right. Uh, needless to say, of course, those Israelis who are older, who have other <laughs> uh, framings. But right. And it may be that it may take future generations who won't be framed by these sorts of traumas to to make changes in the future. But that means you have to have. I, I still feel like affects me in a slightly different way, because we were talk- one of you mentioned before about there being security guards and things like that at restaurants and, and, and uh, during during that period. Um, and today, most restaurants in Israel do not have security guards at the entrance and things like that. And for example, uh, where I live in Modian, um, now there's no security guard. If you come up through the parking lot of the main shopping mall in Modian, if you come through the parking lot, once you come up the stairs into the main mall, there's no security guard. And I find that absolutely horrendous because I remember a time when every public building you went into in this country had a security guard. And it was almost instinctual that you'd walk in, you'd open your bag, you'd walk through the detector. And now they've removed all of that from the mall in Modena. And I just, it, it still grates on me. It like feels, oh my God, what, what, why are they doing this? What's going to happen? Something bad's going to happen. Because of that trauma that you're discussing. You're not comfortable with it. You haven't, you can't make your peace with just not walking. You have to walk through security. Yeah, absolutely. And I know it sounds weird because on the other hand, at the beginning when this starts, people are like, oh, I can't believe I have to walk through a metal detector. Now I can't believe I don't have to walk through a metal detector. So experience shapes your, your comfort levels. By the way, Generation Z is growing up with the trauma of rockets. <laughs> the trauma of rockets. Listen, Generation Z in the United States is growing up with the trauma of school shootings. And, you know, they may also end up with security at different places if... There aren't real changes. You know, Americans, that's unthinkable. What do you mean, a security guard at a movie theater, at a mall? Like, yeah. is, to Israelis, that's that's a comfortable part of life. You're right. I wasn't thinking of it as in some ways reassuring. But, but, that's, but again, the Israeli sense of reassurance comes from we will take responsibility to keep terrorism down because nobody will help us do it. So if you're complaining about checkpoints, if you're complaining about security barrier, whether it's wall or fence or, 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 or technology or whatever it is, if, if you're telling Israelis, well, there's a side of that issue, which means that Palestinians are suffering and that has to be addressed, that infrastructure needs to be dismantled, Israelis' initial reaction is, you know, well, we don't want to start exploding again like we did until 2005 when they were put up and it stopped. That, that's how the second intifada stopped. We can't go back there again. So you better have something to say to Israelis that makes them, that reassures them, that addresses that sense of trauma. And I think, look, I think a pretty realistic set of fears about what it would mean to, have, to, to, to uncheck the terror apparatus. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's, uh, it's part of life here. You know, and I guess, I, I think diaspora Jews know that um, but they haven't experienced it as viscerally, I think, is the, is the difference. Um, and, and it does frame, because they ask questions, and is it safe, and all those things. And, um, but I think that it's the visceral experience of it, which is what you were talking about earlier, which is really the, 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 that has affected also very much the political consciousness in this country. And that, that's, the, that's where the miss right. is. I yeah, yeah, I, 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 yeah. I, I, I think they know it, that Israeli, but they don't get it. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's a difference. They, they understand that Israel has that in its history, and they know that it affects people, but they haven't really sort of sat back and said, well, what, what you know, 
what effect? How, how I know how would that affect my voting? Right. <laughs> right. Why? Oh, yeah, yeah. Maybe I would vote differently or think differently if I had experienced, if I'd lived through five years of a terror war. You know. You know. If it, you know. How, how does how do people who lived in New York in you know two thousand and one, how did that how does that shape their voting patterns? Would have now imagine that that was going on for five years, not one event in one day. The generation that experienced 9-11 is going to act differently than the generation, you know, or, or the young people who grew up. There are soldiers fighting in Afghanistan who weren't alive during 9-11. What, are their, what is their generation going to? Like, these generational things really do shape in a way that sometimes as you get older, you don't notice. Yeah, I think that, we said before, there's, a, like, there's the generational differences, <coughs> but there's also the geographic differences, right? So something like 9-11... As, a, as someone growing up in England, I was in Israel at the time when it happened. I, I saw the build, watched the news, saw, saw the buildings on fire. It didn't hit me in the same way that it hit my roommate in Yeshiva, who was American, right? Just, it just doesn't. So there's the generational difference, there's the geographic difference. So your, your personal experience really does impact how you, how you experience history, I guess, in a way like that. Yeah, yeah. You, your life experience is, and, and for most people, their historical perspective is their life experience, and anything before that is like academic history. It doesn't. It's not as impactful. Uh, which I actually, I mean, at least I think all of us, us as history, as teachers who are involved in teaching history, we sometimes say you should have that broader perspective beyond your own lifetime. That history should be relevant and meaningful to you. Pa- across time and across geography, you should be able to listen and read and learn and get different perspectives that are beyond yours. And those should be integrated into your understanding of the world. Listen to those voices from the past. Listen to those voices from afar and make them part of how you understand the world as best you can. Yeah, I noticed that when we have our, our, our faculty meetings, the three of us, that there are certain events which I was like five, six, seven years old for. So obviously I don't remember them growing up, but there's something I've learned about since, like in history books and, and in other kinds of medium and, and learned about them that way. Whereas you guys, no disrespect, a slightly... Oh, no, disrespect intended. A, a slightly more senior than I am in terms of years. Uh, you just had to try and get that in. And I succeeded. Um, but you are, you are both older than me, and you have you lived through some of the events that I've learned about academically or from a like learned about you live through them you you have experiences of remembering when these things were taking place and that clearly impacts how we understand those events and how we teach those events because you were living through them and and i wasn't it's true and that's natural but what i what i am arguing though is that there is still worthwhile understanding how world war one changed Mm -hmm. the western world and how it change the Middle East in a way that you listen to the voices from the past that, that, that give you a sense of what that is. And it, that deepens your own experience. And as, you're, as you pointed out, Matt, geographically also. Listen to the voices on the various sides of any issue or across the world to understand as much as you can. Obviously, I'm, I'm speaking ambitiously. My, my, my family accuses me of actually living back there and, and those pre-times before I was born in those history uh, because I actually live there they think uh, that's where my mind is mostly uh, yeah but I think I think there's you know you for any period of history for any place in the world there is a window there is somebody who's expressing it in a way that you will find meaningful and the more you want to understand yeah the more you look for those windows and peer in so you know we're Israel educators so that's our focus dealing with Israel issues but it's true really with any issue on any topic there's somebody there's some way for you to access it in a way that's meaningful for you. Um, and I guess I hope that this podcast plays that role 
for our listeners to some degree. So uh, thank you, fellas. Hopefully uh, we can talk about better news and better things in future episodes. I'm sure we will. Hopefully Ben will be back next week because, again, this week we're without Ben, so you may notice it a little bit of the old-style recording. We yeah, miss you, Ben. We miss you. Come back. Yeah, we can't wait for Ben to come back. Uh, thank you very much to Amit for letting us use an empty classroom to record. That was very generous of you. And we're back to one handheld mic, so you may have heard the voices switching around. Very old school for us. Uh, so thanks for putting up with us. But uh, obviously, Ben was on a well-deserved vacation, which while we look forward to him returning, we don't begrudge him in any way. So don't take it that way, Ben. Uh, so thank you very much, guys. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Uh, This is the part where I remind you that we are the JU Israel Teacher's Lounge podcast. And it's also the part where I ask you to subscribe, to rate and review us, and to share and recommend us in any way you can. Also, we'd love your feedback so we can respond to you on or off the podcast. Thanks so much for listening, guys. Thanks.